when you are weak, He is strong. When you are in a sea of trouble in your life, your Deliverer works the miracle of salvation to save you. Many will drown in the waters of this life, but you who are in Christ will rise again. I hope that you'll follow this sermon for the sake of your very life, that you in Christ will rise again. Hearing the message of Christ, even as early as the whisperings of the story of the Israelites crossing between divided waters in the Red Sea. Michael Morales wrote an excellent little commentary on the book of Exodus, and he shares the following. Israel's final deliverance is narrated in three sections in Exodus 14 with reference to the sea and the time of the day. He said, Toward the sea at dusk, verses 1 to 14, were the Israelites. Amidst the sea at night, verses 15 to 25. And on the other side of the sea at dawn, verses 16 to 31. And those are the parts that I'd like to take the text today together on. And so they bear repeating. Verses 1 to 14, the setting, just a few days out from the Passover. The setting is toward the sea at dusk. And then amidst the sea at night, verses 15 to 25. In the dark, though not, the text will say, bumping into one another were the Israelites. And then toward the sea at dusk, or on the other side of the sea, looking back. At dawn, rather. Not at dusk, but at dawn. So dusk, night, dawn, to look at verse 1 to 14, 15 to 25, and 16 to 31. As we're reading this, kind of get into, this is a real event, I'm not trying to hyperbolize the event or anything like that, but get into the theology of the symbol of the sea and the darkness of the night as you're thinking about this text. This would have been three and a half millennia ago, and this impending threat of Egypt's pounding pursuit with the chariots behind them, with two humans on each chariot, with a driver and a, and a professional archer prepared to kill and wrangle and, and, and destroy and re-imprison, re-indoctrinate, re-enslave these hundreds of thousands, million, probably two million people that were needing to, to pass without bumping into one another through the sea. So you're very quickly faced here with the imagery of fear and, and scariness, death in the sea. And Morales points out really helpfully, as you're thinking about this text, that over 400 years have passed since God's people, Israel, went into Egypt. And he points out that the, the, tra the travel of Joseph was kind of like a funerary experience. It was like a descent into death. The Ishmaelites were carrying um, myrrh and gum. The balm they were carrying was sort of like funerary materials. And what was Pharaoh's people experts in but embalming? Egypt is described as a deathly experience. It didn't start that way for Joseph and his people. You might remember Joseph was very wise. And Joseph, Jacob's son, even though he got a really bad deal the way he was sold into slavery, he ascended 
and became second in command in Egypt uh, because of his wisdom. And he, he helped save the Egyptians from famine, but also by extension, he helped save his own family and had a reunification with his family. You can read about these tale, details late in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. But we're now sort of parachute dropping into the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And a lot of that knowledge and that grammar is assumed as we come into this story today. And, and to kind of fast forward through and summarize Exodus 1 through 13, Exodus begins with the fact that over 400 years later, the Pharaoh is not fond of Joseph's offspring. The offspring of Jacob or Israel, they're not happy with them. And they've been um, bothered by the vast multiplication of their families. And so they sought early to kill the children by none other than throwing them into the scary water. Throwing them in, if you read in Exodus chapter 2, throwing the babies into the water, and in the water they would drown because the Egyptians were unfavorable toward and scared of and imprisoning of God's people. So if you were to think of God's people um, in today's terms, sort of like uh, the church, God's true believers, then the society was oppressing the church, and it got to the point to where they didn't want them to procreate. They didn't want them to have children. They wouldn't have a future. And bracketing all the plagues that we're fast-forwarding through that we've already preached through and talked about is the scary waters of the Nile in Exodus 2 for the babies being thrown into, tragically, and now the scary waters of the Red Sea. But what you're going to see is God's people have been delivered from the Egyptian mainland only to be pinned up against the sea for what looks to be sure and certain death in scary waters. And so that's the drama of this familiar story, admittedly from the Bible. The drama of it all is, is being bracketed by, the plague's being bracketed by these, these scary waters. And I, I think just from the onset, we can, we can think about the fact that in the midst of the scary waters in Exodus 2, so was there an ark of salvation for Moses. And now here is Moses maturing helping them come across in a proverbial ark, the Red Sea. And we're going to see that the Egyptians do not get across, that judgment due upon them falls upon them at midnight, and their corpses are floating sort of graphically. This is not a G-rated chapter in the Bible. They're floating sort of graphically on the edges of the sea at the end of our text today to illustrate that salvation comes with a backdrop of judgment. And it's thought that the Egyptians, or the Israelites, not only plundered their weaponry for the defeat of the Amalekites in the future of war, in the not-so-distant future from this story as they head toward Mount Horeb after this event, it's thought they not only plundered the Egyptians during the coming out of Egypt, but it's thought maybe they also plundered their weaponry on the edge of that sea uh, to, to firm them up for battle. Perhaps that's a reason for the directional challenge, for this is a circuitous way of going about getting to the Promised Land, and they could have gone the way of the Philistines a different direction, but the text that Pastor Kurt preached last week uh, indicated to you in chapter 13 that God didn't send them that way for a reason. He didn't think that they were fortified for an immediate war, and so there's some weaponry perhaps gathering. With that extended overview of the theology of water and that extended overview of what's going on as we sort of drop into this, this seminal story in the history of God's people crossing the Red Sea, now, let's read the text and try to get much more focused in a sort of linear way where we can follow along with it. So this is Exodus chapter 14. This is God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal 
and the sea, in front of by Zaphon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we've done, that we've let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people, pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pi-Heharath, in front of Baal-Zaphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to bring us to, to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Now verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the, made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and in the morning watched the Lord in a pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, 
and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled into it. The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. May God bless the reading of His Word and add grace unto those who hear. You can trust God. You can trust God first when life seems illogical. You can trust God second when enemies pursue you. And you can trust God third before you have believed all the right things. That's the way we'll take it today. So first, you can trust God when obedience or when life seems illogical. I wonder what doctrine from God or of God has seemed or seems at present illogical to you. Maybe you can think of it even now. And yet here you are, listening to a preacher who affirms all the classical orthodox doctrines of God and from God. So why? Why does God have you here today? I wonder maybe if you wouldn't fit into that category of a person that struggles with or finds illogical some classical doctrine of God or about God, I wonder if instead of denying the merits of doctrines from God, I wonder if you simply struggle with the straightforward application of those doctrines. I mean, we all do to some extent, right? I mean, if you read God's Word long enough and you meditate on it consistently enough, you're going to bump up against some application, some stop talking to me about it and go do it type thing that you just, it's just, it's going to seem, you're going to want it to seem illogical to you. It may even be illogical. I mean, how illogical is it for these people to back themselves into a corner? It, it doesn't make sense to us with the, the admittedly limited information we have when we just think of and look at a map of our landscape. Why would God do that? Why would he do this, we might say, to personalize it? Why, why would God command us to believe certain things and act upon certain things that are just, they're just going to land us in ridicule and hot water and in being hotly pursued by the cultural experts around us? I mean, just to, just to use an example, I mean, there's so many we could use. Um, if, if, you, if you take a hard line, say, it's not even a hard line, it's just a gospel line, but if you just take a line that the culture seems 
uh, hard with regard to, to gender and sexuality and relationships. If you just, just take a plain text reading of the Bible and say, logical application for, for what this says is that. So I'm going to obey God by proclaiming and living this way. Well, that, I mean, I could see where some of you would find that like being backed into the corner of a Red Sea. I mean, it would seem illogical to obey God in those ways if our purpose in obeying God is to get something from God. But the reality is, and this is where I want to try to help you this morning to to overcome what seems illogical to you, the reality is, and you need to hang with me for this, this is a hard one, I've struggled with how to say this clearly, but I'm going to try. We come to a place like this knowing that we need something like this. But we generally come to a place like this thinking and even begging God to fix my problem, see my situation the way I see my situation, and make it all better. And the reality is that's maybe 80% of the way there. It's maybe 80% of the way there. But if you put yourself into the moments of the Exodus events and standing on the edge of the Red Sea, you would find yourself, I think, sympathizing with and even identifying more with the emotions and the expressed fears and concerns and the blame shifting and the, the, the non-binary choices, the fallacy of the excluded middle, all the bad arguments that they're making here. You would find yourself more following what they would perceive as logic than what God has, edict, has made an edict of that is logical. Oh, but, 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 but God, but God, but God, but God, but God. And the missing link to all that when you come here and when you hear to God is the same that they needed to learn as God's new and budding people. They needed to learn, just like we need to learn, that the way to come into God's presence as God's people, and make no mistake, the church is the assembly. There is no church without the assembly. This is the church. Church is, is the assembly. So when we gather church, when the church comes in, what we need to remember and understand, and, and, and we can't remember it if we don't first understand it, is that the way to get really that manifold blessing of God sense about what he's trying to show you through Scripture is to take God on his own terms and realize that it's not that God isn't understanding your perspective. It's that you're not understanding his. And the, the remedy for so much of our social confusion and our frustration, even as professing people of God, the remedy is to desperately, consistently come back again and again and try to understand more of God's view of what's going on in our situations. We cannot perfectly understand that, but we can ask for His help. And all of our help comes from the Lord. The Lord promises to bind up the brokenhearted. And the Lord promises to guide the steps of His people. This is what we need to remind it of again and again. That's why the Psalter would say some powerful refrain, obviously considering the verses that we've just read, like some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. But as for me and my people, we trust in whom? 
in the Lord our God. Well, I mean, I don't trust in chariots and horses. Well, sure we do. If we trust in human might, governmental might, chariots and war horses, I mean, can you imagine this top-notch army in the ancient world pursuing you on foot, carrying your bread goods with all your babies on the way out, and now they've decided to come after you. It's, it's actually illogical for the Egyptians. I mean, they should have now known God's strong arm and hand is with the Israelites. There's, it's illogical for them to follow them there, but they're probably not seeing that. All they're seeing is what's right in front of their eyes. And there is definitely a play on words in these texts, or at least a correlation of words, because they see something that makes them afraid. And by the end of the crossing of the Red Sea narrative here, they see God and believe and they fear the Lord. Unless we get ahead of ourselves, get ourselves into the the sinews of this text that that God might might shape us by this text, which is our real hope, so that we we are coming with that perspective of, God, what do you see that I don't? Instead of, God, look what I see that you can't. I mean, that's the op, that's not, that's exactly what the enemy would have you to, to, that's the shaping he would have you to have is, I'm in this situation, if you just got me, you don't know me. No, he knows you better than you know you. He gets you better than you get you. That's, that's, the, that's the issue. That's, the, that's, the, that's the, the crosshairs of the issue. That's it. He gets you better than you get you. Well, he doesn't. Well, then that, that's a different God. That's a God of our own creation. You have to tell yourself again and, again, again and again, it's not that God doesn't get you. It's that you don't get God. And as you get God through his self-revelation, then you come to understand that you really don't understand enough about yourself and that he knows you and that he has got you. That even the faith that you have in God is a gift in and of itself. You can trust God when obedience seems illogical, when life seems illogical. Um, God communicates to us in, in, in terms of the doctrine of accommodation, in terms that we can understand. Matthew Newkirk was quoting John Calvin. He said that the reformer Calvin described it as God speaking to us with lisps the way a nurse speaks to a baby. In doing so, God interacts with us in ways that we can handle. It doesn't change who God is. God accommodates our understandings so that we can, we can think of Him as He is to us. God is completely self-existent. He always has been and always will be. Time does not describe God. But we are bound by time. And, and we are bound by fears, and we are bound by constraints and geography, and we're bound by gravity. And he communicates to us how he set his affection on us as his people, and how in setting his affection on us he, as his people, he communicates to us through ways and means that we can understand. And this text is filled with it, with, with all sorts of language that we understand ourselves through, because God has accommodated language to help us to understand more of Him and even our need for more of Him. If you look down at your Bible, just quickly a few things within this first section of text. Pharaoh assumes the ignorance of God's people. He just assumes they don't know geography. He assumes that they're lost, wandering in the wilderness. He assumes they have leaders that don't understand the compass. And in pride, the enemies of God encircle 
them, and this is what happens to the enemies of God. It seems like there's no way out. But we know that the Bible says that pride cometh before the fall, right? I'm amazed, in a sense, at the four words at the end of verse 4, and they did so. I mean, before they looked up and saw the chariots, they were obedient, right? Before the circumstances caused them to question what was going on. And they did so. That, that, that is a mouthful of truth for us. And as Pharaoh draws near, we find in verse 5 that they had changed their mind toward God's people. It's such a fickle and double-minded people. And, and we can be that way too, but we don't want to forever be that way. We want to grow out of double-mindedness. We want God to help us through that each step of the way. And he wants them to serve them again. I mean, this is the epic challenge between Yahweh and Pharaoh. The epic challenge is that Yahweh says, they're going to serve me. They're going out in the desert to serve me. And Yahweh says, I don't know who you are, but they're serving me. And it's just this, this tussle is, the, is really what's going on in Exodus 1 through 14. And this is, the, this is the, the death knell in it for Pharaoh. No more. There's no, no more tussle. You're done. These are my people. We'll have plenty of problems out here, but we're not dealing with you at this point. You're done. Drowned in the sea. Have you ever been pursued? I mean, this is dangerous stuff. I'm not asking you to verbalize it out loud here, but if, to be pursued, it's, it's scary to be pursued. We do this, I coach some basketball with kids, and we do this chase-down drill to simulate the fear of being pursued. So a person takes off, and they're supposed to make a wide-open layup, but they're not wide open because two people be chasing them from behind. It's usually fast people, and they're coming to try to steal the ball. And, and the, the thing is to simulate this, like this thing that you would normally just do in obedience, put the thing right off the top of the square and put it in the glass. It's hard to do because you've got this pressure coming up against you. And so you have to simulate this 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 action before the pressure comes in any sport. I'm sure you can make relevant application of the sports that you love, things you love. Do you have to simulate that fear before it happens? And and otherwise you're 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 going to succumb to the fear and you you will you will you'll be you'll be paralyzed. You won't be able to to act. Being pursued is a is is a real. It really creates this fear. God knows His people better than His people know His people. I mean, He right down. It even says in the text it. God sent them a certain way because he knows them. And I, I don't know why God takes the long way around with you in your life. I, I, don't, I don't know why it seems to take decades to get it right. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, maybe I hate to just over-create hyperbole, but there, there's something here, like devotionally here, of depth. And maybe you just feel like, like you've, just, you've just really gotten yourself backed into a corner maybe you have but as you're trying to follow God you can't figure out exactly how you're going to get from the pursuit what you're being pursued by to where you're supposed to go and the same God that divided the waters so that his people could walk through makes a way where there is no way and that really takes us to our second point now doesn't it if you look down and we'll look briefly at verses 13 and 14 but we really want to lean into verses 15 to 25 verses 13 and 14 frame it it says, And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Don't be afraid of what you see. Stand firm. Stand firm in your faith. I want you to see the salvation of the Lord this very day. He's going to work for you this today. The Egyptians whom you see today that you're afraid of, you're not going to see them again. I mean, this must have seemed like gobbledygook. And then verse 14, And the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And I sort of say that, take that to mean shut your mouths. Like, you're jawing on and on and on, just zip, zip it. It's not, I don't think of it as be still and know that I am God. I mean, that, that's true. That's a truism in Psalm 46.10, but 
I don't think of this silence that way. I think of this silence, and maybe you do. I mean, that's why we all study this together and we reform together. It's why we talk about the sermon afterwards, why the, the, we want the word to be talked about. I mean, I'm not giving you the final declaration of what this means, but I, I take it this kind of silence to be sort of a very small, put you in your place, like just zip it with all the complaints. We got stuff to do. The Lord's going to fight for you. Um, well, maybe there's something there. And in, in verse, uh, well, and also, I, just a quick aside, the Psalter uses it this way too in Psalm 106. If you want to read that on your own, I don't have time to, to read it all to you, but in Psalm 106, 9, he rebuked the Red Sea, it became dry, and he led them through the deep as though a desert. It's, just, it's almost like a corporate prayer of confession in Psalm 106. So that's almost worth thinking about in terms of how uh, God recognizes his people here have a long way to go. Uh, so maybe you, you, you feel pursued. Uh, look at verse 15, that's exactly what's going on here. The Lord said to Moses, and you can kind of mark these three sections by that phrase. The Lord said to Moses in verse 115 and then in verse 25. So in verse 15, our second point, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people to go forward. Why, why is it that you're continuing to talk about this? Perhaps even in prayer. I mean, prayer is great, but when you, there's an obvious step of obedience that has seemed illogical to you. Um, you know, I use the example of affirming biblical gender and sexuality. There are others that could be used. Um, it's, it's so illogical to you. <laughs> You know, to stop looking at the screens, that God would give you the strength for that. Uh, you know, the, the, well, you, if you fill in the blank what it is to, to overcome the evil one in your life, the idolatry in your life, um, the, whatever it is, as you're being pursued by the enemy, uh, the Lord says, go forward ostensibly in your faith. Do what I've already told you to do. And so in verse 16, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. The people might go through and dry ground. Now, where have we seen this before? If you think about Exodus, I know some of you are newer with us, so I'm going to try to fill in the gaps just a little bit, but, but some of you are just you're already there, so just indulge the 20 seconds. This is what Moses and Aaron were described, what was described to them to do to, in the beginning of the plagues, when we're narrating the plagues. And remember the, the first plague where the blood, where the, the water turned to blood, uh, God over Yahweh, over the water, over the scariest thing you can imagine. They were to lift up their staff, and certain things would happen, and if you ponder back over that, in plagues 1, 4, and 7, you have them coming to Pharaoh during his, what was likely his ritual bath in the Nile in the mornings. So remember, we talked about what happened in the morning here in the scary water. You've got corpses floating in the water. Yahweh is describing all the way through giving rebels against him, all the way through a chance to repent and trust him, but there's no repentance here. There's double-mindedness, there's consequence management, but there's no repentance here on the part of Pharaoh, none. And so this time, midnight has struck. This time, there'll be no mourning for the ritual bath. This time, the paganism will be thwarted. This time, the enemy of God will meet his maker. And I want to talk specifically to the, the, the non-Christians in the room now. Um, I'm at the, the whole service is geared toward Christians. We gather as Christians and talk to Christians, but we try to have a time in each service where we say something specifically to non-Christians. So I want to do that. Now, I want you to understand that your midnight will come, that your rituals will stop, and you will face your Maker. And I want you to know if you face your Maker on any basis other than what He has done for you, other than what Christ has done for you, that you are as good as drowned in the sea. And I'm not talking about your first death, which we all face. I'm talking about the second death, eternal separation from the God who made you. And you would rightly say to me, 
as God is opening your eyes to see, you would rightly say to me, how do I escape that death? And I would say to you, you're not going to understand it all yet. That's our third point today. You're not going to understand it all yet. I would say to you, by faith in Christ's finished work for you, His death for your life, by faith in Him, with all that you don't yet understand, by faith in Him and in Him alone, and not your own works, through faith in His salvation, you have eternal life. And if you come to faith this morning, it is not because you did it yourself. Faith is a gift. If you come to faith right now, it's because the Lord's already been working on your heart that these words here would hit you and that you would be changed. Is that you today? I'd love to hear about it after service. I'd like to talk in the foyer. I'd like for you to stay for a potluck. We'll have a bowl of soup together. I'd love for you too. You know, at the end of the month, our men gather. We have breakfast. We really like to eat around here. It's a thing. <laughs> we have breakfast together, and we're studying a book titled Salvation in Full Color. And um, the sermon that we're coming up on this month, in fact, our service leader today, Sean, heads that up. And the, the sermon that we're going to be studying is by uh, an old pastor hundreds of years ago named Ebenezer, Pember, Ebenezer Pemberton. I can't get the name out. It's a very, very, very big name. It was a junior, too, so he had a dad. They chose to do it twice. And he wrote a sermon on the new birth, and he made an observation in that sermon um, that you can have two people hear the exact same sermon, and when the gospel call is made, it moves not one person, and it moves the other person to receive Christ. And he says that is, and I think he rightly says, that that is evidence of faith is a gift. That's evidence of that you heard God's call effectually and you responded, and the other one's just cold to it. You know, I mean, Pharaoh is as cold as ice toward Yahweh. It's, it's always about what he can get for himself. It's always about his perspective. It's always about his comfort. It is never about the good of people, and it's never about the knowledge and the fame and the worship of the one true God. And that's a pretty good litmus test for us. We get in the weeds of whether or not we're perfectly following Christ in all of our ethical behaviors. That, there's a time to talk about that in counseling. I'm talking about, like, darkness to life. I'm not talking about whether or not you've got it all figured out yet. I'm talking about being set on the path to knowing God more fully. And he turns those lights on. I mean, he's the one that lit up Goshen and darkened Egypt. And he is the one that made the sea parted for his people and gully washed with the scary sea all the Egyptians. And he is the one that turns the darkness light for you. And you say, well, then what can I do? That's what you naturally say to me as an unbeliever. You say, well, what can, what can I do? And I would say, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Like, well, that, that, I don't, I, what, that's not fair. What can I do? And I would say, exactly. Like you're coming to that understanding. What can I do? By God's grace. I mean, that's the road right? That's the road we all come to. We come to this absolute desperation. And Pemberton writes about this too. You men should really come to the study on October 29th. It's going to be a great one. <laughs> I didn't mean for it to be a sales pitch, but it came off that way. It wasn't my intention. <laughs> what can I do? Nothing. That's the gospel. That's it. That's the gospel. You can't do a thing. Jesus did it all. All of it. Every bit of it. So take, take him. Take hold of him. You say, in service to the second point, well, I feel like I'm being chased. You are. The enemy doesn't want you to receive this. He wants you to blame God. He wants you to blame shift. 
I'll pull you out of that. And blame yourself for your sin and give God credit for your salvation. That's where you need to be. And that is a, that's a, that's a shift for a person that hasn't before. Trust Christ today. Trust Christ today. And we're, we're, then you'll be, you'll be in, a, in a struggle with the rest of us. We're just, just trying to figure this out, trying to grow. But ensure in certain hope that the God who parted the waters for his people 3,500 years ago will part the waters for us and get us safely all the way home. That doesn't mean that we won't face times where we're very, very afraid. It doesn't mean that we won't face times where we are rightly feeling pursued, just like these guys did hotly feel pursued. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that, um, that we should expect a, uh, a new Moses. <laughs> you know, Moses was a, was a wonderful deliverer who at this point is, is better than 80 years old. And next week, Lord willing, when we look at the song, um, we're going to get to see his big sister playing a tambourine and, you know, and Aaron, his older brother Aaron involved and all the people singing a song of God's deliverance and everything. Moses um, was a prophet who wrote down substantially the first five books of the Bible. Moses was a great deliverer of God's people. He was preserved in that ark of salvation in the Nile like we talked about and then later would lead the people to be preserved metaphorically in their own ark walking through. Um, but we don't need Moses. Like you're going to see at the end of this sermon, it's not Moses we need. We, 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 we needed a better Moses, and that Moses has come. We, we, don't need another Mo- we, we don't need another Exodus story. The Exodus story is a way of talking about the salvation story. But I, I don't want to get ahead of myself too far. Um, not too far. Let's look at our third point. Uh, I, I, I wish, like I said, there's so many devotional thoughts to, to, to try to draw out in verses 15 to 25, and I hope that, that you're able to just pick up on enough of them to be able to, to do more of that on your own to the glory of God and the good of you and your neighbor uh, as a result of today. Be pleased with that. But now this, this last sex, section of the, of the sermon comes from the header that's in verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, uh, uh, stretch out your hand over the sea, that scary sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon the chariots, and upon their horsemen. This is um, salvation through judgment. Uh, judgment is now being seen uh, from midnight the times come for the unbelievers that, that have not shown actual repentance, that don't have the fruit of faith. These are people that, um, that die, and, and their death is righteous, and the evidence of their death is, is right in front of God's people. And, and, and as I've, I've said now, you can trust God to act for you. And you can trust him when life seems illogical. And you can trust him when you're feeling pursued by the enemy. And then this thirdly and last point really kind of ties them together. You can trust God to act for you before you have believed all the right things about God. And I don't have to really labor this one long because we've already talked quite a lot about this. But there's something here, I think, to, to draw just, just a little bit further than what we've already seen that you can trust God to act for you before you've believed all the right things about God. Because I, I, think, I think this is something we get hung up on. Like, I want you to put yourself into the, the, the feelings and the thought process of God's people. Um, like, I mean, just you know, 12 hours ago, on the, on the other side of the sea, they're feeling hemmed in. They're hotly pursued. 
They're feeling desperate, and the blame game is starting to take effect. And the very leader that God has, has prepared and humbled and fortified for the moment, Moses, because let's not think Moses' past is just filled with faithfulness, because it's not. Here he is, though. His finest hour is coming, and the people he's to lead are making some of the same mistakes he made earlier, you know. And they're afraid of what they can see instead of being afraid of the one that they see by faith. And they get to the other side, and they look at this thing, and they must have thought, and I think it's one of the reasons they burst out in song. See, they must have just thought, why did you do this for us? I mean, I'm, what? I'm, you did all the plagues, and I still doubted you because of the hot pursuit of the Egyptians. And, and I mean, what, what kind of God are you? Like, I mean, wouldn't it just, that's salvation. It's, what kind of God are you to do this for me? Why am I alive? Faithful to those with very little faith that are his people. After the waters had covered the chariots and the horsemen, verse 29, and the people had walked through on dry ground to the scary sea. Verse 30 says, it was the Lord that saved Israel that day. He did the work. And Israel saw the effects of God's judgment. A shrink-wrapped version of Judgment Day right there on the edge of that sea. For all those outside of the Lord, Yahweh, here, Christ. And what Israel saw was not Egyptians' power, but that on that day, the great power of the Lord used against all the enemies of God that no chariots and horses, no war machines will ever be able to thwart. So the people learn the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of knowledge. And what does it say? They believed. They believed in the Lord. And they believed in his servant Moses, even servanthood. Before they had believed all the right things, or even most of the right things about God, here's God acting on behalf of his people. I wonder if that provides a comfort for you today. We don't mean to as preachers. I, I mean, I've been preaching for 21 years here, and I know I've preached moralistic sermons that beat people down instead of encouraging them to trust in Christ for their salvation. And, and there is a time and a place to tell you what you're doing wrong. There is. There's a time and a place I, I, to tell, I need to be told what I'm doing wrong. There's time for that. But by and large, the message of the gospel is good news for you. Like You need to know that Jesus has done this for you. And you need to understand that even if you haven't got all the beliefs sorted out yet, just simply affirm Christ's salvation and strive to be shaped by His Word instead of you shaping His Word, you're well on your way. And you can start to embed yourself into these stories and see Him in your story and see yourself through the lens of who He is and start to have more and more and more assurance that despite the circumstances and the weariness of this life, the sufferings of this life, that they're purposeful in Christ. And that the one that made you has remade you. And the one that remade you will keep you. And that 
the faith that you have in that now will one day become sight. And as the dead, enemies of God that don't rise to new life start to float off into the distance, you will then have your eyes turned completely and totally toward at the marriage feast of the Lamb, your Savior. And whatever was wrong with the world will now be made right with Christ. It's good. It's good. Let's pray.